This is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, I'm super excited today to have a conversation with Mark Young. Mark earned a bachelor's degree from Purdue University in computer sciences and spent nearly 18 years in the Silicon Valley creating pure technology solutions. He worked for companies like Zynga and Yahoo throughout his career. He also founded his own company own company called Hip Logic. Many of you don't know this probably, but Mark also grew up on a farm in New Jersey growing hay and raising cattle. He is now working in his homegrown roots, serving as the chief technology officer at the Climate Corporation. He was also a big part of a panel at the Van Trump Conference, and we appreciate that. But with that, I'd like to welcome Mark to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, it's great having you as well. Let's start the podcast off talking about how you grew up on a farm. Many people working in uh, the ag tech side of things these days, I wouldn't say, have a background growing up on a farm. I think that's where us here at the Van Trump Report and Farm Tank relate to a lot of people in agriculture. We grew up on a farm and work with a lot of farmers ourselves. So tell us a little bit about that experience for you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it is. You know, something that certainly separates me from, from some of the other folks, especially working in, in digital ag today. But uh, I grew up on a farm, a uh, small family farm, uh, only about 120 acres or so. But um, we did uh, bit beef cattle when I was really little. Uh, and then we, uh, we started uh, boarding horses and doing uh, high-end horse hay. There's a lot of horse racetracks there in, in southern New Jersey over Atlantic City Raceway and Brandywine, Delaware and things. And so started doing that. We did that. You know, my my whole childhood until uh, till even after uh, I left for college. Uh, then finally, after uh, Dad didn't have his farm hands, he went back to uh, running a herd of a black Angus and, and just doing uh, big round bell hays uh, for that. But um, yeah, I grew up the whole the whole sort of farm kid background. Went to the rodeo every Saturday night. Wore cowboy boots, kindergarten, the the whole thing. Do you ride yourself? Uh, you know, funny, yeah, funny story. So, like, the first thing I told my dad I wanted to be was a bull rider, uh, of course. Um, and he, uh, he, 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 he very nicely uh, persuaded me to do something uh, a little less intense. Um, yeah, but uh, as a kid, I, I, uh, I definitely wanted to uh, wanted to be in the rodeo. But, um, but uh, went on to uh, did a, get my uh, degree in computer science. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. You got this ag background, and then you ended up going to school for computer sciences. Could you just tell us why you picked that over maybe a traditional business or agriculture degree? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, some of it had to do with, with my dad. Um, you know, he, uh, he he worked really hard, as all farmers do, and, and uh, he, he wanted something a little different, you know. And so he, he, he was always, you know, Telling both myself and I have a younger brother, you know, to be our own boss, start our own business, um, you know, that sort of thing. And probably in between junior high and high school, I had, uh, they had bought me a computer to basically be able to type reports on and stuff for, uh, for high school. And uh, anybody that grows up on a farm knows kind of once the sun goes down and everything's done, it's, it's pretty quiet. And uh, I just spent a lot of time tinkering away on it and, and really, uh, really enjoyed it. So when it came time to choose something to go to college for, um, for me, it was a no-brainer. I, uh, I, I picked computers and, and, uh, and, and went for it. Answer this one for me. Since you got the background, I kind of did similar. Some people probably think, uh, working with my dad now and what he does, I got to degree in agriculture of somewhat or some type of business degree, but I actually hold a degree in English and philosophy, totally different than what my dad does, what I'm doing now, but maybe you could help answer this question for us. I feel like myself and you, 
kids growing up on farms in rural communities feel pressured to go off to college and study something in agriculture or business. What advice could you share with us for high schoolers going off to college who would want to do something different like us? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of dynamics, especially when you look at farm kids, um, you know, because the, there's, there's very often a generational di- dynamic that says, hey, you know, one of, one of the children is expected to come back and take over the farm, right? So you have that dynamic. Um, then you have the dynamic of, you know, are you going to stay in a rural community or are you going to, you know, move to a, a bigger city maybe for, for work or whatnot? So that all factors into kind of, you know, what it is you go off to school to do and, and, and whatnot. What I tell kids most of the time is, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to do what really makes you happy, right? And if, if farming every day makes you happy, then, man, more power to you. Go for it. We, we need more farmers in the world. Um, but if it's not, you know, taking over the family business and, you know, not enjoying it is, is going to be work. You know, farming's hard work no matter how you cut it, and, and to not enjoy it is going to be difficult. I think the option that kids have today that we, you know, you and I didn't necessarily have is the technology that's coming to ag is, is so interesting, and, and we're on the kind of uh, the brink of a, of a real change, I think, in, in the ag industry is that kids today don't necessarily have to make an either-or decision. You know, you can go into mechanical engineering or robotics or data science or, or any of these sort of high-end technical careers and bring it back into ag and, and have a great career. Um, and it's kind of interesting. I kind of stumbled my way into this with my role at, at the Climate Corporation. But um, more and more today, you know, there's, there's precision ag programs popping up at universities all across the Midwest. Um, and there's a new there's an option now uh, for kids that they they don't really have to choose between a technology career or an ag career. You can you could choose both and, and uh, enjoy the best of both worlds. Seems like uh, when I coming up through probably my freshman year of high school, starting there, I started to see the breakthrough on ag tech side of things. But once I got in college and decided my degree my degree and everything, that's when it really started to break through, but I planned on going and being a lawyer. Ended up looping around like you. Now I'm working in ag again with my dad to see a lot of great opportunities. Um, seems like you and your dad were pretty close and you were talking to him. One question I had for you is, who's been the most important person in your life? Can you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah, I'd say, you know, I'd say both my parents. You know, if I if I look to, you know, who's who's most responsible for where I am in life, it's, uh, you know, both both mom and dad. Um, my mom was a school teacher, um, and so she she worked full time. And my dad actually worked full time uh, most of most of uh, his career as well. In addition to farming, he used to get up and go to work at like 5 a.m. and come home at 2 or 2:30 and start bailing hay and Hell, sometimes he'd take, pick me up from school or wait till I got out of school, and then I'd, I'd jump on the tractor and, and finish bailing and whatnot. So, I mean, it was it was long days for both. But, you know, from my my dad's side, I mean, he really taught me about hard work, obviously, on the farm. There's there's no end uh, to, to, to hard work. But not just the fact that, you know, work is hard, but, but that uh, – you know, there's a sense of uh, accomplishment of, of, you know, putting uh, putting a good job into, into something, no matter what you're doing. And then also, there's just a number of things that come up on a farm that, man, especially as a young person growing up, just seem impossible. Um, and, you know, what he taught me is you just kind of take assessment of the problem and just, you know, go about it smart, put your back into it, and before you know it, it's done, and you did something that you didn't really think you could do. So... You know, that from my dad's side, that was really important. Uh, from my mom's side, you know, being the school teacher, I mean, she she really you know put the uh, the importance of a good education uh, on me, and uh, you know, do well in school and 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 really work hard and and, and do as as good a job as you can there and, and take it as far as you can. And so between the two of them, and I turned out okay. Sounds like it seems like you got a little entrepreneur blood in yourself since you were younger. You started your own business in college called Net Knowledge Inc. Uh, what 
Tell me a little bit about this company. Yeah, so like I said, my, my dad really instilled in us early on, I mean, from the time we were kids, to, to really be our own boss. Um, and so I was coming back even over the summers and working the farm because uh, my, my dad really needed me. So I didn't really have the opportunity to, uh, to take an internship in my major, in my computer science major. I would have had to move away and been someplace else. And so since I was doing that, <laughs> What I decided to do was start my own company and, and get my own experience, basically. Around that time, this is uh, kind of mid mid-90s. Um, you know, businesses didn't really have websites by and large. You had some of your your biggest ones had websites, but the web was just kind of getting started. And so, what we did at Net Knowledge was take your small businesses, uh, like you would you would have your local plumbing shop or. Uh, your local car dealer or, or whatever, and um, think through what it would mean to, to create a website for them and um, and build it and show them kind of the advantages of, of what having an online presence could do and, and things like that. And, of course, today you can't imagine a business without a website, but uh, back in those days it was, uh, it was new, and we had a lot of convincing and doom. What that did for me is it had – you know, I had new customers come in with problems, and we'd, de- we'd devise a solution and what was interesting, and then I'd code it, build it, release it, uh, get paid, which was another always interesting dealing with, uh, dealing with uh, customers like that. So just a lot of good experience, and then by the time I graduated, I, I could use all that in my career. How did you – tell me this. How did you come up with that idea since all this was so new at the time you started? What, what were your thoughts like when you were just getting started? Well, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of take, take inventory of the skills you have and, and then uh, inventory of the, of the problems at hand and you try to match them up, right? So um, I, knew, I knew what I was capable of and, and what I was learning in school and, and what I could do for folks. And, uh, you know, we're convinced that it's sort of, you know, you have to be passionate about technology and technology adoption because in the beginning, you know, it's all new. You've got a lot of convincing to do. Um, and so we just put in the time, and uh, it was it was interesting. I remember a plumbing company. We we uh, we created an online um, kind of uh, like an online advisor where people could ask plumbing questions, and they would uh, they would respond. And they had requests uh, even from South America, believe it or not, uh, come come through their their little. And this was just like a little local plumbing company, and so they were just amazed at some of the results that. Uh, that, that were happening, um, and again, it was all new back then, so it was uh, it was really interesting. Did you sell this company off, or just kind of graduated school and stopped doing stuff with it? What, when I graduated, I knew. Yeah, when I graduated, I knew I wanted to, to to go on to Silicon Valley and and start a bigger career. And so I had a partner that uh, uh, from back home that had um, helped. Um, he started the company, and so he he bought my my portion of it, and and he continued on for a couple of years, and then I I went on to Silicon Valley. Good deal. So you were at Silicon Valley, and then in 2005 you founded another company called HipLogic. What's uh what's HipLogic? What's what yeah, uh, HipLogic was uh, was a mobile technology company. So if you think of uh, if you think of Google's Android today and, and your Android handsets, uh, HipLogic was basically another version of Android. Uh, but we we started that company even before there was Android. So you know, had had things been a little different, maybe uh, it wouldn't be Android. Maybe it'd be HipLogic. But uh, but the way things work out, Google Google bought Android, and, and kind of the rest is history. But we were very similar to uh, to what your Android handset does today. That's what HipLogic did. You think you were a little too early to the game on that side of things? Yeah, you know, um, it's it's a lot of interesting lessons learned. So. Um, you know, we focused on the handsets of the time. So, you know, they were they were fairly limited in their compute power, fairly limited in their memory, and we built a great experience with great applications. Um, what Android did was they, they built that same kind of great experience, but they relied on a much, uh, much more powerful handset. Um, and... Once they were backed by Google, they had years to, to work this out, right? So they actually had a couple of years for, for those more powerful handsets to show up and and and, uh, and become a viable option for them. So 
there was a little bit of there's there's a fair amount of timing involved in it. But um, you know, one of the one of the lessons I learned there was, you know, think big, think long term. Don't don't necessarily solve a problem that's uh, in the you know only going to be a problem for for the next couple couple years, and really understand kind of where the industry trends are going and and set yourself up for success, not just next year, but, but five years from now as well. What really motivated you to start at Blogic? Did you think the idea was like the idea and that was five years down the road that was going to be it? Is that what motivated you, you think? Um, I'd say, you know, just frustration of a problem. Um, you know, I started that company before the iPhone and before Android. Um, and if you look at you know, the use cases that I had on the wall in HipLogic, it, it absolutely are the same use cases of how you use your iPhone today or your Android handset. And so the, the purpose and the idea behind the company was, was spot on. Um, what I kind of underestimated was just how much it would take. Um, there's some things that only big companies can really do in terms of, you know, especially transforming industries like the way both those companies have. It's very difficult to do as, as a startup. But the need was there, um, and so the you know the, the thinking was was right. Timing was a little difficult. Resourcing was a little difficult, but um, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. It sounds like the need was there. Um, you raised did you raise thirteen million with HipLogic? Is that right? Yeah, give or take thirteen, fourteen, something like that. Yeah. So we work with a lot of ag tech startups now. I'm sure you're pretty familiar with startups, and they're all looking for funding. What's some advice you could share with us for these companies out there looking for funding? Like you said, is it just the company that is solving the problems, or is there some tricks behind that? Um, yeah, there's a lot of tricks. So the, you know, I raised uh, I raised somewhere thirteen, fourteen million dollars over a couple of rounds of Silicon Venture Capital. We were backed by Benchmark Capital, which is one of the most uh, prominent uh, Silicon Valley venture capital firms. So I've got a fair amount of experience in raising money, and and the uh, the irony is, you know, if you've really got a good product concept and a good business, it's easy to raise money, and that that's kind of the that, that's kind of the dirty secret is if you have everything together right the way you should, it's actually fairly straightforward. Uh, the problem is, you know, there's there's a lot of people with a lot of good ideas that aren't really businesses. Um, and, and that's the, probably the, one of the hardest things to explain to young entrepreneurs and, and that are trying to start a business. You know, everybody thinks, oh, I'll just go raise money. Well, that's not exactly what you're doing. What you're doing is you're selling a portion of your company um, in exchange for, for, for capital to, to, to grow it and make it start. So if you're, if you're selling a portion of your, of your company, that company has to be worth something. And the way that that company is valued is based on whether or not it's a viable business or what the upside is, opportunity, things like that. So there's a few things that factor into it, but um, but that's probably one of the most interesting things is you know if you really if you really have it dialed as a as an entrepreneur and you know who to talk to and how to raise money, you understand it. It's actually quite easy. So it's one of those things where once you've done it, uh, it's it's a hell of a lot easier than uh, than the very first time when you're starting out. Who do you see? doing this today who's doing this really well uh, obviously Indigo's raising incredible amounts of money but what other companies are you seeing yeah in I think Indigo is one yeah in ag tech I think Indigo is one of your your interesting ones um, I think uh, some of the uh, the vertical farming startups are, are really interesting um, obviously Farmers Business Network has raised quite a bit of quite a bit of capital um, so there's a there's a few folks that are that are that are really quite good at it, um, and I think there's still an opportunity for, for some pretty pretty good uh, return on uh, results in some of those spaces, especially I think in the vertical farming space as they sort of that space matures a little bit, we start to understand the economics of it a little bit better. Yeah, um, tell me, tell me this one. I know we were just talking about how you're an entrepreneur. What's some good advice you could pass on to someone like me just start farm tank up or another young entrepreneur um, that's just trying to start their own business what's some good advice you would have I think the best advice I could get if everyone out there is uh, you know you're not the first person to start a business um, and my best advice is seek out of some folks that have done it 
and start by standing on their shoulders. I mean, uh, entrepreneurs, it's one of the things that I did. One of the first things I did uh, is I went and talked to a friend of mine who had started a few different companies. And uh, I started from his advice, um, and, and he kind of helped me. And as, as entrepreneurs, you know, depending on how you define success, you know, we all have experience that we can, we can lend and we love to share. We love helping other entrepreneurs out. Um, so best advice is seek out some folks that have done something similar, uh, or, you know, whatever they've done and, and really pick their brains and, and, uh, and take it to heart. You know, it's, uh, it, you know, it's entrepreneur is a, is a, is a quirky personality because, you know, we, we get told no constantly, but we have to continue on even despite being told no. Um, but I will say, you know, that's one of the requirements, but, but also, you know, take some advice to heart. You know, there's there's a lot of us that have done it uh, a number of different ways, and we can definitely help you if if you let us. Yeah, me and my dad were just having a conversation this morning. Um, we were just talking about how to become successful and what he's learned in the past. He was telling me you you got to just emulate people. You got to do what they're doing, and then eventually you're going to do it. He's telling me, yeah, they're Getting up in the morning, drinking coffee, and eating two blueberry muffins, you're going to do the same. You walk like they walk, you talk like they talk, and eventually it comes. What do you think about that? Do you think that's accurate? I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's great advice. You know, whether or not it comes or not, it still, still juries out. But I tell you, the, uh, there's nothing better than to spend time with like-minded people. Um, you know, if, if, if that's what you want to do, seek those people out and spend as much time with them as possible. Um, it, it's a, it's a great way to accelerate, uh, you know, where it is you want to go in life. Something I wanted to pick your brain on a little bit in this conversation. Uh, I know you worked at Yahoo, but I'm a little more interested in your experience at Zanga. I just want to know where you think this whole game industry is going. I'm personally invested in a little bit of EA sports take two interactions, stuff like that. I'm just, um, maybe there's something you're seeing since you've worked there in the past that I'm not seeing. I was just wanting to know your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, uh, gaming was fascinating. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was a, it was a great experience to, to be at that company as they, as they grew, uh, through their IPO and afterwards and, and really understand kind of how people can play games and why and when, um, and, you know, a lot, what's interesting is a lot of my former colleagues from Zynga has, have actually started a lot of virtual reality gaming companies. And so, you know, we haven't really seen that hit the, hit the mainstream yet, but I can tell you in terms of cutting-edge game development, um, that's, that's a lot of what's going on right now in Silicon Valley is, is all oriented towards virtual reality. So, you know, we've, we've got our Fortnite and we've got some interesting things that are happening in the space, but uh, that's an area where I think is, uh, is, is still has to play out. You know, Facebook has their big acquisition of Oculus, and uh, I think we still have yet to see that uh, really, really get realized in the space. Um, I think the environment's perfect. You know, everybody has a high-end either gaming console or high-end PC gaming rig. Uh, connectivity is great. You know, we got high-speed internet to everybody's house, um, and I think the next thing you're going to see is you're going to see everybody putting on a helmet and, and starting to play things in, in, in VR. When do you see this starting to make a big splash? I, I'm definitely playing that long-term play with the VR now, getting invested now. But when do you see this actually making you know a what? I splash think, in the market? I think, yeah, I think it's going to be. Usually these things happen on a Christmas, you know, so like a, a particular Christmas will roll around and all of a sudden there'll be a really hot VR headset available, but it's going to take a combination of a game and a headset, right, to, to really drive uh, the two, because the headset without the game's uh, not interesting and the game without the headset's not interesting. So we're going to have to have somebody that comes along and, and has a really interesting VR game in concert with a, with a, with a, you know, just a well-packaged, well-priced headset. And then that's going to drop on some Christmas. And I, and I don't think it's going to be far. I don't know if it's going to be this Christmas, but it's, it's definitely going to be within the next couple of years. What type of game do you think it's going to be? Like a Fortnite or more sports oriented? You no, know, 
those are the obvious ones, but I would, my hunch will be it's something that we don't, we can't anticipate. You know, if, if you look at, uh, you know, certainly Fortnite has been incredibly successful and, and first-person shooter games have always been successful, right, since the very first one uh, came out, you know, uh, years ago. I think the big success is going to be something we don't see coming. I think it's going to be like your Pokemon Go style uh, game that is that is just a complete different application of the of the technology, and it and it encourages people to play in a way they've never never played before. So uh, I don't know what it's going to be, but I think it's going to be something that we just hadn't seen before. Good deal. That's some good advice. Do you think like EA Sports or Activision Blizzard, one of those, are going to create it or? A whole new company. Maybe, uh, maybe. Uh, generally, they're they're uh, you know they they have a lot of uh, of uh, big titles that they they're you know big franchise titles that that, that they they leverage. Um, the breakthroughs often come from the little startup companies, you know, and then they then EA or Activation will acquire them and they'll, they'll be part of their their big franchises. But um, you know, I think some of the some of the hot, hottest innovation comes from the from the smallest, hungriest companies. Interesting, yeah. Let's step away from your work life a little bit and what you've done in the past. I just want to get to know you a little bit more. Um, I was talking to Benjamin, and he was telling me you like to hunt a lot. What's uh, some of the best hunting stories you got for me? Maybe trips you've had or experiences. Yeah, well. Uh, one of the great things about growing up on a farm, you know, I started, uh, I, had a, I had a compound bow in my hands probably, God, I don't know, I was probably eight or nine years old when I got my first one. And, uh, you know, as a farmer, a lot of folks come back to the farm and, and ask to hunt on the property. And one of the ways my dad used to have a lot of fun is, is, uh, is require the person to be able to outshoot me. Uh, with a bow, which almost never happened. So he, he, I think he took a lot of, he got a lot of fun out of that. But uh, yeah, I grew up deer hunting as a as a kid, um, almost all archery stuff. Um, and uh, what's nice now is, you know, and, and getting back into ag takes me around parts of the country where where folks enjoy enjoy getting out, uh, enjoying the outdoors quite a bit as well. So you know, I've done pheasants in the Dakotas and ducks in Arkansas and, uh, and, and have, uh, have a, it's a great way to bond with customers and, and, uh, and, and talk a little business and, and have a good time as well. Uh, in terms of like trips that are great, I've got a, I've got a trip coming up to New Zealand here, um, after the start of the year that I'm really looking forward to, uh, to try and get a red stag with a bow. So that'll, that'll be fun. So are you strictly bow hunting? Do you, do you not rifle hunt at all? No, I, uh, you know, we grew up with all all the seasons. I think I enjoy I enjoy bow the both. I also got into long range shooting um, probably a few years ago. So I do a lot of shooting. Um, most of it tends to be target, um, but uh, but I'll also uh, you know also rifle hunt. You know, shotgun. Um, hell, we grew up black powder. Everything. Do you hunt any big game ever? Um, I haven't really had a chance uh, to do that. Um, I've got a I've got an elk on my short list that I'd really love to do, but I haven't uh, haven't gotten a chance to do that just yet. The stag will probably be the biggest thing uh, I've ever gotten. What kind of well, you're out in the San Francisco area, right? That's where you live. Well, I uh, I've been in I've been in the San Francisco area for the past 20 years, and I just moved to St. Louis, which is one of our other offices, about uh, three months ago. So I'm I'm just now. Uh, relocating kind of to the Midwest to be a little closer to our customers and uh, also be able to, uh, you know, get a nice uh, piece of property for myself. Good deal. What, so what's hunting like out in California? Did you ever hunt out there? Any? I've never hunted out there. Yeah, before. I did. I mean, uh, the, the only uh, thing about California is you just have to get out of Silicon Valley, right? So you've got, you know, your, your big population areas of the state are, are Silicon Valley, uh, Sacramento, and L.A., you get outside of that, the state's really rural. There's a lot of good hunting opportunities, a lot of turkey, a lot of deer. Um, there's some elk as well. Um, um, and, you know, we do some upland stuff. I had a great uh, sporting clays course uh, near my house where, where I live, so I used to shoot sporting clays all the time. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's not bad for the outdoorsman, but uh, just the problem is the, the density is really high, so there's a lot of people. you gotta, you got to work to kind of get away from the... Uh, Away from all the people. 
So tell me about fishing. I heard you're a pretty big fisherman, too. Yeah, I, I enjoy fishing quite a bit. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, in South Jersey. Everything's small creeks and, and ponds and stuff like that. So uh grew up doing a lot of bass fishing. Um, my dad used to make me track my hours that I worked for him on the farm, and then he would pay me, and the half of what I earned would go into my savings account for college, and the other half I would usually send off to Bass Pro Shops. Um, so <laughs> that's usually how, how I spent my spent my money. Now I'm doing a lot more fly fishing as I get older. It's a sport I really come to appreciate, and it's another good 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 thing to practice as I as I move around the country. Northern California has some good fly fishing. I've I've hit Colorado as well. Utah's nice, and even here in Missouri, there's 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 some fly fishing. So so that part's been fun. Yeah, not bad, Missouri. We're here in Kansas City, so. No, a little bit. I've done some pretty crazy fly fishing up in Wyoming, Tetons, over in Idaho. There's some good stuff over there. Have you ever done any at Yosemite? You ever fly fished you know, there? Uh, I, I have been to Yosemite, and I have fly fished there. The problem there, again, is you really got to hike into the backcountry if, if you want to get catch, catch at something. I mean, the, uh, the trout there in, in the park see so many fishermen, so many flies that uh, they kind of just laugh at you when you <laughs> when you toss a fly out there. But if you hike back in the backcountry, you can uh, you can get you can get into some of the mountain lakes and stuff, and 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 that's that's more like uh, well, I'd say more normal fishing. You know, you can you can be pretty successful uh, if you if you're willing to to, to huff it a little bit. What about I'm trying to think? I think it's called Sacramento River right there in Sacramento. Is that is that very oh, good yeah, fly fishing? Yeah. Yeah, it really is actually. There's some there's some really good. Another there's a big striper run in the in the Sac River as well uh, every year. That's uh, that's fun. Uh, steelhead. I mean, there's 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 some really good fishing in that in that Sacramento River. Yeah, that's. I've been wanting to get out to California and try that out. So your Benjamin was telling me how you do a little four wheeling in your Jeep. You you got a Wrangler? Yeah, I have a, a 2015 uh, JKU Wrangler. Nice. I got a 2014 JKU Wrangler, so nice. pretty cool. So you go out and tear it up in that, or what's that look like? Yeah, I, uh, I got it, uh, like I said, it's 2015, and, and right straight away I uh, I did an axle swap. So it's got uh, Curry Dana 60 Rock Jocks front and rear. It's got a Synergy Long Arm suspension, you know, riding on 37s. Um, I've, I have a Sprintec Supercharger. Uh, Alcon brakes. I mean, it's uh, it's it's pretty nice. And uh, this this season, I took it to Moab, and so I've got four or five pretty pretty hardcore trails in Moab, and, and we're planning our uh, planning our 2019 trip to Moab again. We had so much fun. Sounds like fun. I don't do crazy off road, and I just farm some yards here and there around my house, out on the farm and stuff. But I've been wanting to take it in some sand and stuff. How how's it ride on the sand? I've never done it. Oh, it's great. You know, uh, I, I have uh, I have bead locker rims, and I'd say that's that's what you know that's one of the things you you want to do because you want to air down, you want to air your tires down. Um, it's especially useful in sand. Um, but I tell you, I've got an onboard air compressor. I can air up, air down, and and uh, it's it's a blast. I'll tell you, it's a, it's a lot of fun. That's something I need to check out and drive somewhere to get it done. Not a lot of. Uh sandy areas out here in Kansas City, Missouri area. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just, uh, you know, I'd encourage you to sneak, it, sneak over into Utah, man. There's a lot of, there's a lot of terrain there, a lot of great trails, and, and uh, the uh, the national parks there are just amazing. Have you ever flipped yours? Just totally? No, thank God, you know, knock on wood, I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, done that. I did put an internal, internal uh, bolting cage, though, so it's got a cage and, and welded seat pillars as well, just in case I ever do that, but uh, knock on wood, not yet. I hope I, I hope I don't. Yeah, you're not messing around. One of my buddies was doing donuts down at school. I was riding around with him and his Wrangler, just being an idiot in the parking lot, and ended up rolling his, so I was like, wow, what's wrong with this guy? Yeah, yeah, it can happen. They're pretty easy. They're pretty easy to flip. I've got on two wheels before mine pretty easily, not even trying to do anything crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Seems like well, you travel. Well, I'd fly to... Yeah, go ahead. 
I was going to say, it seems like you're traveling quite a bit. What are some of the best places you've traveled to? Yeah, in fact, I just uh, I just did my end-of-year tally. I spent about 29 weeks of uh, 2018 traveling, so I, I get around quite a bit. Um, you know, I travel all over the, the U.S., um, just about anywhere there's farming. Um, Canada, South America, Brazil, Argentina. Um, I, I hit Europe pretty pretty solid to do this year as well. Germany, France, Italy. Um, I went to Belgium as well. That was interesting, and uh, as part of our merger with our acquisition by Bayer, and, and got to testify to the European Union about that deal. Um, and yeah, I mean that's the nice thing about farming. There's ag all over the world, so it. Uh, it, it takes you. It takes you around. I've got a few air miles. What's the best place in Europe you've been? I haven't been over there yet. I've been. I'm kind of waiting, and I'm just going to do a huge Europe trip and just try to bang a ton of stuff out. What's the best stuff to do over there? What Would you like the best? Oh man, that's a that's a tough question. Um, I do really enjoy Germany. I think it's a, it's a really neat country, especially southern Germany. You get into Bavaria and uh, you know the castles and uh, the beer and the pretzels are, are pretty phenomenal. Uh, I also like uh, I, I really enjoy London quite a bit. You can go up into Scotland if you like uh, if you like whiskey. You know that's always a great trip. Um, Spain, France, Italy are, are are of course you know really interesting countries. A lot of history. Um, uh, there, so you know, it just it just depends what you're what you're after. I think the the thing I find most interesting though is it doesn't matter what country I'm in, how similar farming or farmers are all over the world. I mean, we're we, we're sort of cut from the same cloth, whether we're farming in the middle of Iowa or or even uh, hell, I've been out into the villages in India uh, and and sort of been struck at how similar farmers are all over the world. That's crazy. That's something I need to check out. What's on the bucket list for you traveling wise? Is there anywhere you just got to go to? Yeah, I, I still need to get to Africa, so you know that's uh, that's on the on the short list. Um, like I said, I'm heading to New Zealand in, in March. I don't know if I'll get to Australia on this trip or not, but um, there's a probably the big ones: Africa, Australia, New Zealand are, are probably the big ones. I've been through uh, you know some of Asia. I've been to China and Japan and uh, Singapore and. And a few of those those places, but um, but yeah, Africa, Africa, Australia, and, and uh, New Zealand are probably on my short list. Yeah, you definitely getting your way around. I need to get on that plan sometime. Let's talk about Climate Corporation a little bit, though. Uh, just tell me. Let's just start by you telling us a little bit more about the company and the technology that's you'd say helping determine potential yield limiting factors in their fields. Yeah, good question. So, you know, at its heart, Climate is a data science company um, applied to agriculture. And so when, when people ask me what that means, you know, it's like today in ag, if you think about how we make decisions, by and large, we're making them uh, on our past experience, right? How, how we did on our farm, what, what, we, what our agronomist thinks we should do, and we try to talk to our neighbors a little bit. Um, and, you know, we try something different one year, and then we take what we learned and we try to apply it the next year. When we take data science and apply it to this problem, what we do is we look at all the results across all the acres of all the farms, um, and we analyze those. Um, and that gives us a data set where we can start to correlate, um, you know, performance by soil type, and by geography, by by water table, um, uh, by by hybrid, of course, by density, even by equipment, by cropping practice, all these types of things. And and ultimately, what that does is that gives us a way to make better decisions, right? Um, so instead of just making a decision based on what I've done on my own local farm, I can make a decision based on what has been observed to work across all farms. Um, and that's just, it's just another tool in our toolbox. It's, it's not, not replacing your agronomist. It's not replacing your, your relationship with the retailer or whatnot, but it gives them a, a different set of tools to work with uh, to really just optimize the, uh, the decisions that you make on your own farm. So what's the next big thing Climate Corp is working on right now? What's the new big tech product they got coming out? Yeah, I'd say the, the big thing we have coming out is a product that we're calling our seed advisor. And um, what we were able to do is, is take, uh, take that data science model and, and take, uh, take some sci scientific seed models and come up with a tool that can recommend 
right down to your local field what the sort of best uh, batch, I'd say top four or five hybrids would be to plant on that field, as well as the population or the seed density that you should, you should run those hybrids at. And what we're seeing is like we had a, the first generation of the model that we tried uh, in 17, we tried it with one big grower uh, across the, a number of his fields. And, and he's, you know, he was pretty apprehensive as you would expect. Um, because he's big enough or he's got full-time agronomist, he's got expert advice, right? This isn't somebody that's just kind of flying blind. And uh, he planted our uh, our recommendations in that first-generation model, and he saw about a six-bushel-per-acre uh, advantage at the end of the year. Um, so that made a believer out of him pretty quick. Um, then we followed that up. We expanded that uh, to about uh, 25, 26 farmers this year in the 18 season. And with a new generation of models. So what's interesting in these data science models is the more data you get, the more they learn, the better they get. Uh, and so what we're doing right now, we're, the results of those uh, those trials for 18 are, are coming in. They're they're just about they're just about in. But we're we're hovering around a 90% win rate and around a 10 bushel an acre advantage. So um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of promise there. You know, when you start talking about you know, $3.50 corn and, and the depressed commodity prices that we've been dealing with for a number of years. Having another tool like this to, to, to easily figure out how to get that uh, that extra, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine bushels an acre um, is really kind of a kind of a you know quite, quite a quite a change. You know, even the new hybrids probably only get you a few bushels an acre, but uh, this kind of double-digit uh, acre bump is uh, is pretty exciting for us. Seems like you and the company are really on top of the technology side, especially with that explanation you just gave me. Uh, I just think technology is advancing so quickly these days. I just want to know how you and the Climate Corporation keeps a competitive advantage on that front. Yeah, good question. I mean, the you know the answer is there's always another startup getting funded and another great idea around the corner there. I think one of the one of the ways we stay on top of it is just uh, our philosophy is a little bit different. Um, you know, we we at Climate don't pretend that we're the only innovators in ag. Uh, and, and so, a couple of years ago at, uh, at the Big Info Ag Conference, we unveiled our our sort of shift in thinking to be you know away from being just a product to also being a platform. And so, FieldView is not just our our, our product for for farmers, but it's also a platform for other ag companies and other ag innovators. And what that enables those, those other companies to do is they can reach our customer footprint, um, and, and we're, we're on, you know, I think we're north of 60 million paid acres right now in, in, in the U.S., so you're talking 30 40% of all the corn soy acres in the, in the country we've got a footprint on. And that becomes a very interesting, uh, you know, customer base for, for new companies, new startups. You know, if you figure it's very hard for a, for a small ag tech company to, to reach customers. It's just a hard problem uh, in ag. And, um, you know, we announced our, our, our platform a couple years ago uh, to do just that. So we don't, we don't pretend to be the, uh, the only innovators in ag. We take a very, uh, very ecosystem approach to it. And we, we bring in, you know, agronomists, retailers, dealers, but we also bring in uh, drone, drone pilot companies and uh, tool testing companies and, and different uh, different uh, folks that are innovating in, in ag to join our platform and add their value proposition to the mix for our customers. And then you're just bringing it all together. Is that That's right. The one-stop shop. One-stop shop for our customers. And it just it just makes it a lot simple, right? I mean, as a farmer today, you're, you're being hit by it with, uh, you know, a dozen or more different options in terms of your digital ag landscape. And uh, being able to tie all that together in a, in a single ecosystem with a single login is a, is a pretty nice value proposition. And then, as a farmer, you can pick and choose what you want to use, and it's not you know it's not a wholesale investment. You're not uh, you know you know if your data fragmented all over the all over the place. Hey, you said you got we got all these digital farming options now, and it's hard to choose, I'm sure. But it seems like you've been around Silicon Valley for a while, watching all these tech giants develop. I was just wanting to pick your brain a little bit on where do you see ag on this continuum? Like, I suspect that there has to do a lot with the smaller adoption rate when we're not there yet, but when are you going to see these tech giants start to pop up 
in agriculture? Yeah, good question. I mean, we're, we're I mean, obviously, we're, we're one of the, the leaders, so we, we have a lot of conversations with them as it is. They're very, they're very interested in agriculture, um, but more so from a compute perspective. You know, that's, that's what they know. That's what they're good at. Um, so they're really looking to partner with some of the big, bigger players in the space to bring that ag expertise together uh, with some of their compute power. We're already, uh, you know, our, our cloud infrastructure is already built on Amazon. Um, and, um, you know, Microsoft has quite a lot of uh, investment in the space as well, and, and they're certainly our smallholder and digital ag piece. Uh, Google is always interested. You know, the Google Ventures is one of the backers of the Farmers Business Network. So uh, they're interested in the space, but they want to bring their compute power. So they're, they're, they're looking for partnerships. And I think, you know, in terms of as you see the, the ag landscape shake out, I think you'll see some of those partnerships start to come to fruition here in the next year or so. What do you think, in like a five to ten year span, somewhere in there, it's going to start? Oh, I think it's going to happen faster than that. Yeah, I actually think it's going to happen faster than that. Yeah. Um, You know, ag traditionally has been very slow to adopt technology, um, but we're at a a place where a lot of the technology that we're bringing into ag today has already been proven in other industries. And so you don't have this sort of cost up front of, of does it work and how does it work and how can we build it? Like we've solved all that in other spaces. And so what we're able to do for ag is sort of bring proven solutions in that we know work, we know how to build them, we know how to scale them. And it's just a matter of getting them implemented into the space and, and showing the, uh, the results that they can have. So I actually am fairly bullish about the, uh, the adoption of ag in, in agriculture. If you look at even where we've come from, you know, I've been here, it'll be four years in March that I've been in my role at Climate Corporation. We really are in the third season of, of digital ag with, with our Climate Field View product. Uh, and so you figure in three years, we've gone from sort of a standing start to almost 30 or 40% of the, of the market using these tools. And uh, that's only going to grow from here. So, um, you know, it's, you know, we think of ag as being slow to adopt, and I think that's probably true in the past, but these digital tools and the, the, the market the way it is, I think, you know, the opportunity is right for, for a pretty rapid adoption and, and, um, and uh, innovation in, in ag is, is, is quite exciting these days. That's interesting. Well, one more question I had for you on the Climate Corporation is you're telling me how there's all these different types of digital farming products out there, you name a dozen of them. I, I just want to know why should a farmer invest in the climate field view technology? What's, you could also maybe touch on a little bit of the ROI on it. Yeah, it's a good question, and, and ultimately that's what farmers care about, right, is, is uh, you know, how, how do these tools make me a better farmer? Um, and we're just scratching the surface, but, you know, when it comes to the climate field view product, you know, in particular, we're... We're running a, a special this year where, you know, new customers get to try it for a year for free. So, you know, the cost up front to see what, what, the, uh, what the value is actually doesn't cost you much at all. And what we find from our customers is, you know, the value, the value proposition isn't the same for everyone, um, but it's, it's pretty compelling. You know, you start by just getting all your data off your equipment and into one digital place. You can share that out with your retailer. You can send it on to my John Deere or whatever you want to do. But getting all that data into one place with your, your soil test results, your planting data, your harvest data, did a lot of work this year to get all the uh, as-applied data from your from your retail partner, so all of your fertilizer program, your, your spraying, things like that, all gets in one place, and then you can start to analyze that. So uh, even our basic yield analysis tool at the end of the year allows you to, as you roll in your harvester, you can start to see exactly what those decisions are starting to, to net out and, and what they what they mean start formulating your plan for uh, for next year. But uh, when you look at some of our fertility management tools and our certainly our seed advisor tools, now we're starting to get into some real real interesting advantages. And uh, you know, just anecdotally, you know, when you think of the cost of these tools, you know, I remember two years ago we had a farmer on one field. You know, we use our uh, with that really wet spring here in the Midwest, and we had a farmer on one field that was really worried about leaching. And uh, he was watching the tool. The tool was pr- predicting a, a a shortfall in his fertility program, and he went out and applied a, a side dress, and uh, he left a check strip like every every good farmer should. 
And uh, at the end of the year, he figured that one that one decision probably netted him an extra twenty thousand uh, dollars in income. And so that's one decision on one field, right? And so imagine if you're using these kinds of digital tools across all your fields, your whole operation. There is an unbelievable amount of uh, of opportunity out there um, as we think about the variability across field, the variability across your your farm and your operation. You know, there's some fields that you run really well. There's some fields that you just you just don't manage that well. Uh, we find that just time and time again. And so, a digital tool that can call out those kinds of opportunities for you. Uh, what's neat about it is you really only need to be right on on one one of those fields. But uh, if you're right on on half of them are, uh, like I said, our seed advisors having a 90% win rate right now. So imagine bumping, uh, you know, 90% of your fields uh, up anywhere from a couple of bushels to 10 bushels. Uh, so that's that's some pretty exciting proposition, and it varies depending on uh, on our customers. But uh, there, there's there's so much value in these digital tools, and we're just scratching the surface. You know, as we get into starting to manage crop protection as well, modeling disease and doing some advanced scouting work. You know, we use a lot of satellite imagery to do remote sensing. Uh, the capabilities that are coming in the next couple of years are just going to be amazing. Seems like the more we can break this farming down to the science, the profitability just keeps going higher and higher. It's crazy to me how, uh, how much we can keep breaking these down more and more, even like the satellite imagery that they're taking now that they can zoom so far in on the plants they can see what insects are uh, harming the crop and whatnot. But before we wrap things up today, I would just uh, love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on Mark Young. Yeah, I'd say you know the one one piece of advice I can give for uh, you know for the entrepreneurs out there is is, uh, is just figure out what you love to do and, and go do it. Um, and that applies to farmers too. But you know you uh, you know that that axiom that says if you pick something you love to do, you don't have to work a day in your life is is true. The thing that it, uh, keeps me going every day is is I love what I do in technology and I love bringing it to farmers and I love this this age that we're in of being able to to to, uh, to change the way we think about farming and, and really identify the opportunity through technology and and just put different sets of tools you know we're not we're not getting rid of the agronomists or getting rid of your retail or things like that but we're bringing them a whole new set of tools that are just allow them to be that much better at their job and it's, it's just really going to change uh, change ag and the, and the way we farm it's exciting I think that's some really good advice Mark and I appreciate you sharing that with me I appreciate you being on the podcast with me today. I really had a great time. Uh, I learned a lot of insight, and I hope our listeners did as well. I also appreciate you coming to the Van Trump Conference and being part of our panel. I thought uh, you did a really great job, and my I know my family's really grateful for you being a part of that. I think uh, that's it for our Farm Tank session today, and thank you again, Mark. Yep, thanks a lot for having me on. Yes, sir. I'll see you later.